I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. We are making it through this big old book. Um, We just read chapter 10 of the Sindar uh, through chapter 17 of the Coming of Men into the West. Yeah. And to be honest, you're going to have to like lead the structure of this episode a lot. I, I, I thought I might. Yeah, I, I've grasped the individual stories, but unlike last episode where I felt like, oh, here's a very clear like narrative flow. Yeah. This one, I'm just like, I have more information and I don't know. Yeah, once the Noldor returned to Middle Earth, there's just like a few things happening at once and like Tolkien's just jumping around. So we're not going to follow the chapter straight through. We're going to jump around a little to okay. uh, to fit into the... Uh... Sounds good to me. Yeah. But before we get started, we just watched the new Rings of Power trailer that just came out. Yeah. Um, I've watched it like 10 times today. I can tell. You just saw it for the first time. <laughs> what did you think? I thought it was really good. Um, just to recap, we actually last week recorded um, a big drunken rant about uh, the sneak peek of this trailer that we had seen at that point. I had kind of forgotten about that, Um, mainly because I was drunk. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, I I can sum it up real quick. At that point in time, my issues were that um, I didn't like how the prosthetics for the ears had been done. Nothing big. All of of our complaints were like really small. Fairly minor. Um, But I, I just personally thought that ears looked very hobbity they were really big on a lot of the elves that i was i i saw did not feel the same way about the full trailer that i just watched yeah and i think it helps also to see these elves talking and not just have these still pictures of them yeah because then you're like oh you can see the performance and it's like the prosthetics are a little secondary um but when you just see a picture that's all you're focusing yeah i would also say that you know a a big complaint of mine or just a, a concern is always like the use of CGI, um, which felt really big when no one was talking or acting on screen. Yeah. Uh, but feels a lot less having having watched this. Yeah, and honestly, um, I hate when it seems like something has cost a lot, but I'm like, where did the money go? Yeah. I feel like you can see in this like, okay, I can see where the money went. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, an obviously huge production. There's also a lot of um, really beautiful, like real nature shots that we yeah. saw this time that were kind of evading the I know capture they, of the original sneak peeks. I know some of the earlier uh, production they did film in New Zealand. So there were some uh, big aerial shots of some landscapes that yeah. I was like, yeah, that looks like uh, the Peter Jackson movies. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of like I have no problem with CGI if it's applied to a real setting. Yeah. Um, it, but there are still some moments that I'm just a little bit like, oh, it looks like all of this was filmed in green screen. That's always yeah. going to be my hang up. And I, I think it's a, not a very common hang up. I think a lot of people accept. But I will CGI. say of other shows and movies that we see that are shot entirely like green screen, this looks so much better. It looks a lot better, and it looks better than the Hobbit movies as well yeah. already. So, um, <laughs> hey, that's all I need, really. Yeah, if you're gonna do better than the Hobbit movies, I'm, I'll give you a shot. Yeah, I think we get a really cool characterization of uh, Galadriel in mm-hmm. this little snippet, and it's very clear that at least her part in this show 
is going to be about looking for Morgoth and and seeking out the evil or, in this world. Or Morgoth servants. Right, um, yeah. That are still out there. And yeah, and I really liked the sense that we get that like a lot of people think evil itself has been destroyed. Yeah, that it's over. And Galadriel is just like this crazy person being like, no, it's still out there. Um, which I think fits well with the books where we know that she above all were like, she was the most um, vigilant yeah. about the evil in the East that was growing and convincing other people. So I, I really like that dynamic. And I like that Elrond being the younger of all these characters, you know, and he has seen shit in his life, um, as we'll get to in the next episode. But um, she's like, you haven't seen what I've seen. <laughs> um, yeah. And she's right- like, you're born at the end of the Silmarillion. I've been in the Silmarillion <laughs> since the early chapters. So. And right when she says that, we get this shot of just like, red water is filled with dead elves or dead someone um which really looks a lot like the kinslaying yeah i hope it is other people have said it might be a vision of the drowning of numenor Mm. uh which would be cool too but also there are people like stabbed through with spears so i was like it looks like a fight went down I, yeah, and that was the other thing, too, is there's a lot of first age material in here, which I really like. Some stuff that it seems like we just talked about. I mean, there are scenes where it looks like they're crossing the Helcaraxe, and another scene that looks like the Sons of Feanor swearing their oath. Yeah, I'm so, so into it. I'm into all that. Uh, I'm I'm pretty excited at this point to see how they're going to bridge... All of this information that they do have access to, all of the information that they do not have rights to, um, yeah. and and make that into like a tangible story. Yeah, and well, I've been saying from the beginning that I think they have rights to more than people know. And just because you don't have rights to something also doesn't mean you can't use it as long as you get permission from the estate. Yeah, true. So, again, the two trees, Feanor... They're all mentioned in the Lord of the Rings appendices, but the Sons of Feanor and the Oath aren't. The Helcarax mm. isn't. So if they're show, if that is what that is, then yeah, it's what I've kind of been saying, which is that we don't know anything. I'm just like the Tolkien estate has the rights to all of it, and they're working with Amazon. Yeah. So they're giving like uh, again, we could maybe see a lot of it. So uh, I don't know. I think that complaint from the beginning has been very ill-informed, and uh, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. We'll see yeah. what happens. But anyway, um, the only complaint I really have is I'm not too big on the hobbits in this show. That's me really feels I get why they're here. It's because that's what's, I don't. that's what's popular. I mean, it's the reason why there are hobbits in Lord of the Rings. And it's not just the Silmarillion because the Hobbit was a big success as we've talked about. Yeah. And his publishers are like, there have to be hobbits. But one thing I saw in this trailer that I did like is that it seems like the hobbits are camouflaging themselves. And I'll just say, like, the first two trailers didn't really do much for me. I've said this before, they didn't offend me or any way. Um, but they didn't really grab me. This trailer grabbed me. And I was like... Clearly. I'm, I've am i always been willing to give this show a shot, but now I'm, like, actually excited for this show. <laughs> yeah. um, so... Well, good. But with that, we can get into our uh, episode. Yeah. And like I said, we were going to jump around a little bit. So I thought we could just start off with finishing up the story we left off the last episode. Uh, Feanor had come to Middle-earth. He said, let the ships burn. Yeah. And and then in the book, there's a few other chapters before we get back to Feanor. I'm just going to jump right into it. Okay. Um, So yeah. 
Feanor is attacked by some orcs and he just kind of keeps pushing forward to Angband. <laughs> um, even leaving like other people behind him. And, uh, and then we get this really epic uh, death scene. Yeah, he he sort of leaves everyone in the dust and he's like, I can do anything. I'm Feanor. And he fights all of these orcs and, and but eventually he's he's taken down by a Balrog. Well, like a, like a few Balrogs. Yeah. Uh, he's it, he's like surrounded and he's fighting them off. Just keep in <laughs> mind, like Gandalf, like one of the Maiar struggled really against one Balrog. And here's Feanor facing down at least like, I'd assume like three Including the the king of the Balrogs. I mean, I just think that my opinion on Fanor is really clear by this point, and I don't want to have another episode just dedicated to me thirsting over Fanor. But like, so it's probably good that he's killed off now. He's the best elf. <laughs> he gets to do whatever he wants, and I will respect his audacity. Um, and this is not, you know, this moment in his story is, uh, not an exception to that rule. He really, uh, knows how to die a death. Yeah. And well, I just love the words like, and Feanor fell with few friends about him. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's a cautionary tale. Like if you just want to do things your way and just say, fuck everyone else, it's like, you're, you're going to come to a bad end and no one's going to rush to your defense. Yeah. Everyone has a little bit of Feanor in them. Like, yeah. No one, no one actually likes Feanor. But just not everyone listens to that impulse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and you know, everyone's on a spectrum of how much they listen to their inner Feanor. And right. Um, everyone's on a spectrum from Feanor to Manway. Oh God, Manway. <laughs> oh, how is he on the other end of that? Well, he's just, I think, the most opposite of. See, I think I think Feanor and Manway share myopia they're both very short-sighted but in very different ways mm. but i would say manway is very long sighted. he's so long-sighted he's so he's, long-sighted he, he he's can't short-sighted. Be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah exactly um, maybe maybe you're right yeah you're you're right um but anyway at his death he he does maybe the worst thing um yeah i really, could possibly do. i don't really care about the murder of sea elves um <laughs> I'm a Mithras fanboy, so he condemns his sons to, like, he sees that foresight of his death that Morgoth will not be overthrown by the elves or the Noldor or anything. So, but he still lays it on his sons to re-swear their oath again. And essentially dooming them to failure and death. I mean... And I think this is the worst deed he ever does. It's it's absolutely the most despicable thing he does, but you gotta respect the game, man. You gotta respect this hustle. He just commits to the very end. Yeah, he just... He is, like, nothing if not committed. Yeah. I love it. Ugh. Um, What a doomed person. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, you know, he, he... He... Gets his sons to swear this oath. Again. Again. But this time he um, knows it's unachievable. <laughs> yeah. he And he's not around to, like, deal with it. Uh, which I I can't think of a, a more clear um, representation of generational trauma than, than this moment. It's like, I'm not going to have to deal with it. You guys go do it. Yeah. Um, um, no, totally. And that's what I'd say the whole Silmarillion is about, really, is just... Uh, intergenerational trauma, people rejecting their fathers. 
Um, yeah. But so now Mithras is the eldest of all the Feanorians, and he's left to treat with Morgoth after this. And um, he ends up getting captured and tormented by being hung from the highest peak of Thingaradrim yeah. uh, by his wrist yeah. in a band of steel, which doesn't sound very comfortable. <laughs> no, it sounds horrible. Um, but while this is going on, Fingolfin, who was stranded, uh, comes back to Middle-earth. And he wants to see his brother again, but, you know... Finds he, out he's dead. He died almost immediately after coming to Middle-earth. <laughs> yeah. After he convinced everyone to come there. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then the people that followed the Feanorians are just like, well, we feel like dicks now. Yeah, um, I'm sure. And so there's a lot of division between, like, the following of Fingolfin and Finrod and the following of Feanor. Yeah. Um... But there's one person who's not willing to abandon Mithras, and that's his cousin Fingon, Fingolfin's eldest son. And he goes alone to go rescue him without an army, without anyone. I think this is like probably Fingon's greatest deed. He doesn't really do much else outside of this. Um, he will one day be the High King of the Noldor, but it's pretty short-lived. Um, but yeah, his bromance with his cousin is, I think, like, the most important thing you need to remember about Fingon. Yeah. I was about to say, um, going it alone is a big theme in Tolkien. Like Totally. Um and doing it for friendship. Yeah, like, yeah. This idea and... that like one or two people really hold the the fate of the world in their hands and um it, it's not these armies that win the war. Yeah. Um, it's like these singular or duets of people. Right, yeah. <laughs> who who uh take the harder path and and go on these kind of like emotionally wretched journeys. Right. And I just love uh, Fingon and Mithras. I would love to hear their conversations with each other because Feanor and Fingolfin are, they're such an iconic brotherly rivalry yeah. in this. But then their eldest sons are just like... Besties. And they're just like, yeah, our dads are fucked, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like, I I don't get this. <laughs> and I think it's really awesome that Fingon does this because Mytheras did think about Fingon when they were burning the ships. He was like, why aren't we ferrying Fingon back across? Yeah. And I even think back to the Kinslang when we hear that Fingon rushed in headstrong when he saw the Sons of Feanor were under attack. I have to believe this was because he saw his best buddy, his favorite cousin, and rushed to help him. I mean, I don't know. I think these two are great together. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like um, stories like this. And, yeah. and uh, but basically, he goes it alone and uh, <laughs> goes to Mithras and and he's like, "Leave me, <laughs> leave me." Well, here. he, he realizes he can't, he can't climb out. up there. Yeah. So he's like, "Kill um, me." Yeah, just kill me. And so after that, Fingon pulls out his bow and arrow and was just like, Manway, like, guide this arrow. Like, basically saying, don't make him suffer. Yeah. And then Manway hears this and he sends the Lord of Eagles um, to carry him up there. But then even then they can't cut the band free of his wrist. So they cut his wrist Fingon off. cuts they his cut hand, his hand off. off. Um which is great. There's a lot of like cutting off of hands. It's similar Fingers, to Star Wars, yeah. <laughs> but I like that this is done in a a friendly like rescue. It, yeah, this rescue really heals the feud between the two yeah. of them, the, these two sides of the family. And Mithras, he's the son of Feanor. Feanor was the last High King, so the kingship should pass to Mithras at this yeah. point. 
But he relinquishes it to his uncle Fingolfin. And he's like, you are like the eldest of all of us. And I've got this oath to fucking deal with. Yeah, exactly. I've got a, other commitments. But also he's just like, he knows Fingolfin is the most valiant. He hasn't done yeah. any wrongs. He was the wronged one. Yeah. So, um, and he's just, the, as we've seen him described a few times, he's the most valiant of the Noldor. So Fingolfin makes a great high king. And um, my the rest of his brothers really disagreed with this decision. But being the eldest, he had final say. And I think this really shows you the rest of the Sons of Feanor kind of shitty. But yeah. Mithras and his other eldest brother, Maglor, are pretty... Um, they know what they did was wrong. And um, they know they can't keep doing what they're going to do against Morgoth without the help of their friends. Yeah. They just saw their father die by just charging <laughs> alone. They're like, that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. But even so, like, Mithras sees that things will not go that well if these two sides of the family are living together. So to avoid tensions, he kind of relocates his brothers to the furthest east. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Fingolfin and Fingon are in the north, uh, the northwest and Mithras and his brothers are in the northeast. Mm-hmm. And between the two of them, they are hemming Ang... They're kind of like hemming Morgoth in Angband. Yeah. He can't come out, but they also can't break in. Right. But at the very least, there's kind of this peace yeah. for a while. So a good part of these chapters that we've been reading are really just about like kingdom building during this yeah. time of peace. And a lot of these elves are like, Actually, Feanor had some good points. Like, we're enjoying the the fruits of what he promised us. Right. And so, as I said, Fingolfin and Fingon rule in the north in this kingdom of Hithlam. They're ruling pretty openly. You know, it's not a secret kingdom or anything. But um, Fingolfin's nephew, Finrod... Galadriel's brother also wants to rule his own kingdom. You know, the House of Finarfin, they don't care as much about the Silmarils. Uh, they just were really enticed by the ideas yeah. of ruling their own lands. <laughs> yeah. And so his great uncle Thingle tells him, Oh, I know where some great caves are. You can have a kingdom just like mine. And so he creates and founds the kingdom of Nargothrond. And he's actually given a new name to Felagund, the hewer of caves. Here we start to get into the my biggest issue with this section, which is the like parade of, of many names for a singular character. Yeah. This one, I don't mind as much though, no, because, because he, he says he's Felagund and he, he keeps calling him Felagund for the rest. And of that's one less fin to know. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good one, but I do know what you mean there. And what was his fin name? Finrod. Finrod. Oh, this is Finrod. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, Finrod Felagund. And so he's the, King of this secret hidden kingdom of Nargothrond. Now his cousin, Turgon, who is Fingolfin's younger son, he receives these messages from Almo to create his own hidden kingdom. And he even tells him where to go and where to look, and he finds this place, and he creates the hidden city of Gondolin, which we've heard about way back even in The Hobbit. Yeah. When we heard about the uh, swords in the troll cave right. came from, you know, the old, uh, the king of Gondolin. Yeah. So Gandalf's sword that he gets was Turgon's sword. Very cool. Um, yeah. And Gondolin is this place where 
all refugees are pretty much welcome during this time, whether they're Noldor or Sindar. And in these chapters, we do start to also see a division between the Noldor and the Sindar. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then in the center of all Beleriand is the kingdom of Doriath, where Thingol rules. And it is protected by this magical girdle of enchantment that no one, like, unwelcome there can find their way in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that comes from Melion, Thingol's Maya wife. But Thingol wants to stay out of these wars. He doesn't really want anything to do with the Silmarils. He just wants to live in the woods with his angelic wife and his beautiful daughter and uh, just live in peace. Yeah. And so these Noldor do come at a time when Morgoth has been uh, attacking them a little. So a lot of the Sindar are actually pretty happy and they think they were sent by the Valar. Right. Yeah. There's this big misunderstanding about why all of these elves have have come across. And they're like, well, that's awkward. If you want to keep thinking that, go right ahead. But Thingol still doesn't want a lot of these Noldor to interact with him. However, he is very open to Felagund and his siblings because their mother was Thingol's niece over in Valinor. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, in Eldemar or whatever. So they're half Teleri, half Noldor. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, you guys are welcome here because you're my kin. Um, But then rumors start to swirl about the kinsling throughout (laughs) Beleriand. And Thingol's like, why didn't you tell me about this? And Felagund and his brothers are just like, we actually had nothing to do with that. Um, We listened to Feanor's words and we we wanted to rule kingdom of our own away from the Valar. But... We didn't have anything to do with that. And if you read Unfinished Tales, you find out that Elise Galadriel fought on the side of her mother's kin. Yeah. Against the Noldor. Right. And I think the fact that she comes to Middle-earth and doesn't even live in her brother's kingdoms, she lives in her mom's uncle's kingdom. I think Galadriel definitely prefers the Sindar side of her family to the Noldor side. Yeah. And Thingol, like, outlaws the speech of the Noldor. He says, only Sindarin is welcome in Beleriand. Yeah. If you speak another language, like, I hold you... The slayer of my kin, unrepentant. Yeah, it's very, it's a very intense moment. While all this is happening, though, Tolkien does have a chapter that cuts back to what the Valar were up to over yeah. in Valinor. I mean, things seem pretty dire with like the death of the trees and the death of light. Right. But from the dead, two dead trees, they create uh, the sun and the moon to give light to the Noldor and men. And what I like about this... Um, in a lot of religions, I think the sun is this, like, ultimate divine symbol. Yeah. And in Tolkien's world, he makes it clear that the light of the sun is a, like, second best thing yeah. to the two trees. Yeah. And he writes in one of his letters that the world under the sun um, is really just kind of a way of saying the fallen world. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a world in which sin exists. Yeah. Um, now because the two trees have been destroyed and paradise has been spoiled so we still do get this light that is this uh meant to be hope for elves and men right but But it's not the same as the two trees yeah 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 and so i just think that's really interesting that the world under the sun is a metaphor for this fallen world but also when the sun first arises this is when mankind awakes the second children of iluvatar that was foretold Mm -hmm. and I love the association of mankind with the sun and elves with stars mm-hmm. and the starlight because yeah. 
the the sun will always usurp the starlight mm-hmm. as mankind will usurp the place of the elves in this world right exactly and as you know the sun gets brighter in the sky in the morning the stars fade away right and you know the elves will fade away also just kind of on that point um tolkien uses like daytimes um to describe like cultures peaking and ending like yeah like the noontide of the realm yeah so he he uses like the structure of days um right to discuss like entire civilizations Mm -hmm. and um it's pretty repetitive it's it's pretty much like the way he describes it yeah and well the chapter i keep coming back to from lord of the rings is the battle of helm's deep Mm -hmm. um i remember there's a part where they say you know this night is as long as years and Aragorn's like, how long will the day tarry? And they're kind of like, well, these Orakai, like, the sun doesn't affect them. And he's like, nonetheless, it will bring hope to me. Right. And he says, dawn is ever the hope of men. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just, whenever you're reading any of these books, always associate the sun and daylight with, <laughs> with mankind. Yeah. Um, and like, I mean, that even goes for, I mean, you brought up the Battle of Helm's Deep, but I think of like the dawnless day where... Right. There's a whole day where it's just the darkness of Mordor. And it has... seems like the end of men. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. Um, and then also stars with elves. And that's, yeah. I think, very apparent. Also, you know, just a connection there is like the the elves always seem to have um, to possess like an amount of like foresight and like predictive future telling, fortune telling power um right which is very associated with stars like just in in our western world that's true yeah yeah but with that association of men and the awakening of men um let's get into that they started migrating westward yeah and we're told that morgoth left his kingdom to go corrupt them but that they bring no tales of that past and they would rather like forget about it and leave that behind them much like the elves with the kinslaying yeah um it also seemed like it didn't really take root the same way um his influence did with the elves um well we see these three tribes of men are the ones that rejected his message yeah that's and, true and that's came true. west so and these three tribes collectively will be known as the Edain, in a similar way that the elves are known as the Eldar. Mm-hmm. And that's really what all these stories are about, the Eldar uniting with the Edain to fight Morgoth. But Tolkien being the good Catholic boy that he was, I think this really leaves room for the biblical fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. So I like how Tolkien's legendarium like doesn't contradict the Bible. It's almost this elvish compliment to it yeah he's like i'm not gonna recount the fall of man he could almost use one of his favorite sayings in this book as is told elsewhere um but he's like i will make up and create this whole fall of elves from their own eden and um yeah so i think it's really neat but the adine are actually rewarded for their migration westward they come into contact with the elves and are enriched by them when they meet Felagund. Dude, I love this little part. It's so cute. Um, we were talking about this as just the way Felagund, not necessarily all of the elves, but definitely Felagund, the way he interacts with humans at first is so similar to how the Valar 
interact with elves where they're just like, wow, they're so cute. Let me like show them beautiful things. They're so precious. I just want to teach you. Yeah. And so um, Felgen just like shows up at their campsite. He like watches them for a long time. Just like watches them. He waits for them to go to sleep. They go to sleep and he like goes to their campfire and starts playing music. He's like, let me show you how to really play a harp. Yeah. And um, they're just, they all wake up and they think they're dreaming until they realize that everyone else is awake too. Um, which is so magical. I, I, I love that yeah, little scene. Yeah, no, it's really great. And um, he befriends the chief, Bayor, and, mm-hmm. and they're really tight. And he tells him about these two other tribes. But Felagun will really be associated with the house of Bayor and Bayor's yeah. descendants. Um, the other two tribes of men are the house of Hador and the house of Halith. House of Halith, pretty cool. I think it's pretty sweet that one of the uh, three houses of men is named after a woman. Yeah, I just think she's a fucking badass overall. She's a really cool character um, who, like, in the face of her father and brother being felled, um, she's just like, okay, everyone, pull up your pants. Yeah, and then she leads (laughs) them through, like, essentially the... uh, the valleys of where the spiders of Ungoliant yeah. dwell and she keeps her people together. And well, I love that Thingol allows her to live on the borders of his land. As long as like you'll fight off orcs if they attack. Yeah. And she's like, stranger, the thoughts of elves. If you think I'm going to make alliance with the people that devoured my father. And yeah, brother. exactly. Which is like, I thought that part was very interesting because it is indicative of like the elves, the way the kinslaying affected the elves was... They're very mistrustful. Yeah, they, they like Super. no longer believe that they can trust anyone. Yeah. Um, and she's just like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> the orcs killed my family. Yeah. There's no way that I'm going to, like, ally myself with them. Um, yeah, I just thought she was, like, really baller and just loved to see it. Yeah. I think my only issue with this section, like I I actually found it very interesting hearing about, you know, usually um, like I didn't find the chapters about all the elves, like when they originally like awake and split up. I did not find that chapter interesting at all. Yeah, I mean, this is an analogous chapter for mankind. Um, Um, But it's way cooler. It's way more like entrenched in like actual stories and like individuals. And um, I think we learn a lot more about the attitudes of, of different groups of men. Um, my only problem with it is it's just like listing names. And earlier... It's a big name, Jeff. We've, we've already, you know, of course, we've complained a lot about names um, already. But most of the names we've complained about are just different names for different people and how similar they are and how hard it is to keep track of all the yeah, names. Yeah, or places, you know. But... This one is like, we get the Felagund issue, but like times five for for different people, you know? Yeah. Bayor gives that name to his son and then is called a different name. There are father and son who have the same name. It, it just, it, it, it's sort of like, what the fuck? You know, like, especially when with the elves, it's like, he created so many names, too many names for different people. And then with the humans, he's like, um, actually, uh, same names for some, uh, totally different names for singular people. 
we're just going to mix it up here. Yeah. And I mean, this is just, I think, a classic example of getting lost in the weeds, um, giving the most context and backstory. Because really what we need to know about mankind, we need to know three men. Yeah. We need to know Baron, Turin, and Tuor. They're the main characters of these next few chapters we're going to read. And so this is just telling you about their ancestors. Yeah. Which I, I mean, again, this is, this is sort of where it's like, I falter with, with how I feel about the entirety of the Silmarillion because I think it's really cool. And I think that the amount of thought and tinkering and obsessing that clearly went into this book and this history that it represents is really admirable and impressive. And I like, like, a good number of the stories that we get from it. Like, when it actually, like, the narrative that you can pick out of it, I think is just, like, top-tier mythological narrative. Yeah, it's just right now we're in between those narratives yeah and and this is all laying the stage for the next round of Feanor stories wrapped up we're setting the stage for Baron and Luthien and it's like it's not that I don't think that this work on Tolkien's part as an author was unnecessary um I think there's I just think this is when you need to utilize an appendix yeah well and also or just like separate books or like yeah just well I mean all these chapters are technically a separate tale all in a massive book. Right, but but the point is that all of this is stuff that makes us wonder, was the Silmarillion like a work that was intended to ever actually be published? Like what like I I wonder um Or were these specific parts meant to be published? Yeah. I think like the Tale of Baron and Luthien, Turin, all I think that was definitely meant to be, but like this other stuff I'm like, this could have maybe been appendix material to those stories yeah and it's sort of like this is the problem you're always going to run into anytime something is published posthumously which is that a lot of stuff might end up in there that was never ever intended to see the light of day and and was just you know still in progress or notes or whatever and um, I mean, Christopher Tolkien being like an absolute lover of his father's life work, you know, in some ways, like, of course, he's the best person to take on the task of like putting this out into the world. But at the same time, I mean, like, he is a son who dedicated his entire life to his father's life's work. And that's a very different thing than what his father himself would look at these, you know, like, I I just think it's, it's interesting to think about all of the um, human relationships that were behind the scenes of this work going to publishing. Yeah. So Felagun's kind of brokering all these alliances between these three tribes of men and these different kingdoms that we've kind of talked about. So the House of Bayor with Felagund and his brothers. Uh, He links up the House of Hador, who are the more warlike uh, race of men with Fingolfin and Fingon up in the north. And they're actually distant kin to the ancestors of the Rohirrim. They're, whenever you think of the House of Hador, okay. long, blonde-haired, 
Uh, I think of like the whole they sing as they slew. Yeah. Uh, they're they're the more merry Viking people, and the House of Beor remind me kind of more of the Rangers of the North. They are these dark-haired, gray-eyed, grim-faced men, uh, very ranger-like. And so there, yeah. there's this dichotomy between them and the House of Hador, which are like we will go to battle, but like we will sing songs and <laughs> yeah. um, and then you have the House of Haleth and. They're allied with Thingol on his borders, and much like the Kingdom of Doriath, they try to stay out of it. They're not that involved, but Tolkien makes a point to say that they are a valiant people. They're kind of shorter. They're homesteaders. I'd say the most analogous group in The Lord of the Rings to them are the hobbits, Mm -hmm. essentially, but they're a race of men. So like Bree folk. Kind of, yeah. That has set the stage for all these elf kingdoms in this time of peace and their mortal allies. But... Like we said, that this peace won't last forever. And there is a lot of foreshadowing in these chapters and um, showing things that will come later on. And specifically stuff that revolves around Gondolin. Um, like Alma, when he first told Turgon to go found this city, to like stand strong as this hidden fortress, he warns him, it won't last forever. Yeah. It will last the longest of all these elf kingdoms. But it will fall. And one day I'll send someone to you to remind you of that. And of him, hope will be born for elves and men. So remember those three men I said you need to know? Baron, Turin, and Tuor? It's the coming of Tuor and his son, Eärendil. Mm-hmm. Anytime you see the hope of elves and men, um, they're talking about Eärendil, the half-elven. And then we get a whole chapter about Turgon's nephew, Meglin. And his birth, how he comes to be, how he comes to Gondolin, and the threat that he poses to Gondolin. Yeah. This was a very interesting story. So it's uh, Arithel, who is the sister of Turgon and the daughter of... Fingolfin. Fingolfin. (laughs) So she's living this beautiful life in Gondolin, but she's like, ah, you know what? Fuck this. I want to explore. Well, they came to Middle Earth to like to like conquer and and lead. So she's like, I got to get out of here, um, and I'm gonna go look for my good old cousins, the sons of Fanor, um, particularly the the not super pleasant ones. Yeah, I'm like, I have to question Aretha. I'm like, what's she about? Because like, if your favorite cousins are the two shittiest sons of Fanor, I sus. mean, clearly she has a like type of guy that she likes to be around because um after as she's traveling to them um she ends up getting uh trapped in this realm um by ale the dark elf the dark elf who sounds pretty shitty Um, he's another um morally questionable blacksmith yeah yeah there's a lot of them yep (laughs) and uh he it's weird. The way Tolkien writes about this is very strange. And I'm like, kind of like, ah, oh, tell me more. I want to know the whole story. Um, but basically he uh, traps Arithel in his realm. Yeah. And he, he takes her to wife and she was not wholly unwilling. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's sort of like, what? It, it seems it sounds like very, there's an issue of consent there yeah, somewhere. Yeah, it sounds very Beauty and the Beast kind of like... Uh, or like almost reverse Beauty and the Beast, where like at first she's like, okay, yeah, like you're cool, 
you're a hottie. And then he's like, well, you can't leave. And she's just like, oh. He's pretty controlling. What? Um, and eventually. Uh, they have a son. They have a son, Maeglin. And um, once Maeglin sort of comes of age, eventually Maeglin and Arathel escape. Yeah. Maeglin's like, yeah, my dad, your husband, is a pretty shitty dude. Uh, and I want to know more about... My whole other side of the family I've never met. Yeah, because not only is Ale like this weirdo who wants to control his wife, he like doesn't have connections with any other elves. He's especially the Noldor. Yeah, he hates the Noldor. He hates the Noldor. Um, he's a solitary elf. Um, and because I don't think we've said, but he is of the Sindar. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I'll talk a little bit more about like his particular views on that in a second. Arathel and Maeglin escape. They have told Ale that they're going to see her cousins. And instead they go to Gondolin. And Ale follows them there and um, has a bit of a confrontation with his brother-in-law that he's meeting for the first time. And he's like, uh, dude, your family, you're welcome to live here, but uh, you have to live here now. Yeah. And Ale, who doesn't like being told what to do, is like, nope. I actually really love Ale's viewpoint on on just this part. I think a lo- he does a lot of shitty things, but um, in this initial kind of uh, interaction with Gondolin, he is like, um, it's ridiculous that any of the Noldor are laying claim to any of these lands. Uh, this is like free land. I don't respect your authority at mm-hmm. all, which is really interesting. I, I, I do think there's something kind of to that where yeah. he's he's like uh, the Sindar um, have been here all along. Right. Like I've been here all along. <laughs> and well, Turgon fires right back, though, because because Aeol could have lived within the girdle of Melion uh, protected by her. But he chooses to live outside of that. Right. And the only way he's safe is because of the Noldor at this time. Like they said that they came, even if they weren't sent by the Valar, they did come in their time of need. So Turgon's like, hey, we've been protecting you, dude. So like, you're welcome. So he's got a point too. But but yeah, definitely the Sindar, I think, generally see the Noldor as warmongers. Yeah. It's just a very interesting like little, little... Uh, interaction around like the structure of feudalism in yeah. the elven world which is cool yeah it's pretty cool but yeah turgon gives him a choice he's like you can abide here or die here at this point he's pissed he knows he's not gonna leave so he's like fine i'll die here but i i'm making that choice for my son too he will he will die here too and then he throws a javelin at Maglin. Which is insane. He er, is like a bad dude. Big Denethor vibes. Oh yeah, absolutely. When Denethor's like, you will not rob my son of me in my hour of my death. Yeah. I will no. take what is mine to my grave. It's very like Egyptian pharaoh. I'm yeah. going to kill all my family. Yeah. If I have to go, everyone's going with me. Yeah. Um, And I have to wonder if his, if Denethor's death in the movie where he like goes over the walls of Minas Tirith and falls to his death while he's burning, which isn't in the books, is a reference to Aeol mm. um, when he's thrown off the uh, walls of mm-hmm. Gondolin. But um, but yeah, so he throws the javelin. Arathel jumps uh, in front of it to save her son. It had a poison tip. 
And uh, yeah, so she dies and Turgon's like, all right, well, you're dead now. You just killed my sister. And I love how throughout all of this, um, Myglin is silent. He never once leaps to the defense of his father. Which is like, it's really interesting. I, I was thinking about that a lot because it's it's noted multiple times. It's not just like... He, and I never noticed that until I was something. listening to it yeah. in the audiobook uh, with you. Um, it is clear that Meglin is, is not He's saying He's chosen anything. his side. Yeah. He's like, you're not my father anymore. <laughs> you can go die. I don't yeah, care. Exactly. Um, um, and his father curses him to die the same death as him. I'll just say, whenever there's like a curse or someone has foresight in these books. It happens. It's not just a safe bet that it'll happen. It'll happen. It'll happen. Um, so Tolkien's like the king of spoiling his own work. Yeah. Um, it, it's very fairy tale. Yeah. That's, that's like such a, a holdover of folktales. But yeah, so Meglin is like taken in by his uncle and he's like pretty, uh, people are pretty happy about Meglin. They're like, dude, you rescued your mom, like the king's sister from this abusive asshole. And yeah, and he's a great smith. He's kind of taken all of the knowledge of his father. Yeah. Um, and he, the arms of Gondolin are, you know, made to be pretty peerless at that time. And as we know from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the swords of Gondolin glow blue in the presence of orcs. Um, I think, you know, it's... I think a pretty reasonable headcanon that Meglin might have, uh, or Meglin or Meglin, however you say it, might have forged Sting and right. uh, Glamdring, Turgon's sword that becomes Gandalf's yeah. and even Thorin's sword. So I think that's pretty neat to think about. But unfortunately, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. And even in this early kind of setting up the world chapter, uh, we get a pretty good indication that he is a freak. He's a weirdo. He meets his pretty cousin for the first time, Idril. And uh, he's like, Psh, I want her. And she's like, I hate this guy. This guy is whack. He's gross. I don't get it. And he's like just more and more in love with her. And the more he loves her, the more she just absolutely disdains him. And the more she disdains him, the more his bitterness grows within him. Yeah. And so, you know, we're we're shown that there is this, uh, a seed of evil is planted in Gondolin. Yeah. And uh, again, this is part of that foreshadowing of that this peace will not last and that these elven kingdoms will not last. And so those kind of, that kind of foreshadows the fall of Gondolin. But there's a few things that foreshadow uh, the tale of Baron and Luthien, which we're about to get to in the next episode. Uh, Felagund at one point foretells to Galadriel that there shall be no kingdom of mine that a son should inherit. And he says, I will take my own oath here soon. And if no less than this, and it's made clear that it's like no less than the oath of Feanor. And he's like, and I must fulfill it and it'll likely lead to my death. So, I mean, Felagund's always kind of been this good boy. He's kind of this golden boy. He's, you know, making all these alliances between the Noldor and the Sindar, between the houses of men and the Noldor. He's just like, everyone loves him. He's a great guy. But then he's got these, like, dark words about himself and his kingdom. And, um, yeah, keep that oath in mind and his friendship with the house of Beor in mind as we get into the tale of Baron and Luthien. And, you know, Baron is a descendant of Beor. And 
then Melian also foretells that her girdle won't restrain everyone. No. She says a mortal will come. Eventually. That will kind of ensnare us into this larger world. We'll see what that's about. Wonder who that is. Yeah. Um, it's Baron. I mean, Tolkien spoils so much already, I feel pretty comfortable doing it. So again, kind of the major themes of these chapters were just wrapping up Feanor's tale, and then that led to everyone enjoying this peace and building all these kingdoms, but there is a lot of uh, indication that that might not last, and this is just really setting the stage for, I think, the real tales of the Silmarillion. So I'm really excited to get into these next two chapters because this is where Tolkien's bread and butter like really was. Yeah, so our next chapters are chapter 18 of The Ruin of Beleriand to chapter 21 of Turin Tarambar. Yep. Lots going to happen. Yeah, the, uh, the status quo that's been established in these chapters is going to change and never be the same again. Which is so funny that you call this a status quo because like, I felt like it was just a, about a lot of like petty battling and, and issues. I mean, there's like a lot of like I guess it's, bickering. it's peace. It's like relative peace compared to like the kinslaying. But... You know, well, there's like, I think the first, last real big battle was like when Feanor charges ahead and he's killed. And right. then after that, there's like these few little affrays, but there's nothing... It's just like, I wouldn't even call it peace. It's just like a very tense time in Middle Earth. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's these tensions, I think, bubbling under the surface, sometimes like bursting out. But like, again, you'll see in The Ruin of Beleriand, nothing that we've seen in these chapters compares to what's about to come. It's about to get dramatically worse for everybody. Sounds good. (laughs) I can't wait. Okay. Well, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at halfaswellpod. Or you can check us out at halfaswellpodcast.com, where you can follow along with our reading schedule. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As Well. Well.